Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm really excited that we're having somebody on that I've had on once before, but he's the kind of guy I never get sick of talking to because his insights are so varied and so multifaceted that you can really sit down with him and present him with a series of, of, of disconnected, apparently, uh, disconnected trends in culture, and he'll tie them all together with a, just a profoundly deep Christian worldview. And that would, of course, be Oz Guinness. Now, a lot of you will know him because he's the author of, of dozens of books. Uh, I actually interviewed him last when his book Renaissance was released. We discussed uh, the responsibility of Christians to create Christian art. It was a very interesting discussion. Uh, his latest book in, in 2015 was Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. But because he, he, he regularly gives commentary on what's going on in the culture, and I recently, of course, uh, interviewed Rod Dreher on his Benedict Option and a number of other people that Oz Guinness had commented on, I really wanted to talk with him again. I'll just give you a bit of background uh, before I introduce the conversation, because his his background is really, really interesting. He's actually the great-great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer. He was born in China uh, during the Second World War, where both of his parents were medical missionaries. And he actually witnessed the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, before being expelled with many other foreigners in 1951. He has his undergrad from the University of London, and his DPhil in the social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. He's written or edited more than 30 books. Uh, just a few of them would be The Call, A Time for Truth, Long Journey Home, A Free People's Suicide, and The Glo- Global Public Square, which is one I, I actually happen to be reading right now. He's also close friends with men like Eric Metaxas. In fact, Eric Metaxas actually says he borrowed the five-volume copy of William Wilberforce's biography written by his sons from Oz Guinness when he was writing his uh, popular biography of Wilberforce, Amazing Grace. And he really has this European and English sense of depth when he talks about Christianity and culture. So I asked Oz if he'd come on the show again and and start by talking about his, his most recent book and then continue on to kind of discuss the culture as it stands today and how Christians should respond. And this is that conversation. Uh, I wanted to start off by saying that in your latest book, you call this age the age of apologetics. And I know a lot of uh, Christian apologists who are very excited by that terminology. Why would you call the age we're living in right now the age of apologetics? Well, I did that because it's actually a a secular description of where we are. In the age of the social media, where identity and all sorts of things come on the social media, I post, therefore I am, you can see that everyone's in the business of presenting themselves, selling themselves, and so on. Now, that's purely a secular comment. So I'm quoting secular people in saying that. Right. You might also, you might also say, from a Christian perspective, it's also the age of apologetics, in the sense that first we've had an explosion of pluralism in most of our Western countries, the Christian consensus has collapsed, so we need to make sense of our faith to all sorts of people from all sorts of religious backgrounds. And then, of course, with the mounting rejection of the church in the Western culture, we're in an ABC moment, I call it, 
anything but Christianity. Right. You know, we need to give a defense of the gospel. So both on secular grounds because of the social media, but far more importantly on Christian grounds because of the changing cultural context, this is a magnificent age for apologetics. In order for us to really figure out how to present our apologetics and how to approach the rest of the culture, we really have to know why the Christian consensus did collapse in the first place. And of course, that's a complicated question, but why, at least historically speaking, uh, in your view, did the Christian consensus collapse more or less right across the West? Well, one reason is inevitable, the explosion of pluralization. That shouldn't cause any problems. The early church was born in a highly diverse pluralistic society and maintained its allegiance to the exclusiveness of Christian truth and the Lordship of Christ without any compromise. In fact, as we know, they died for it. Whereas with the collapse of the consensus, many Christians today have gone the other extreme. They're demoralized and there's a failure of nerve and so on. So that's inevitable. Pluralization is a fact that's just written into the advanced modern world. Now, there are all sorts of things that were not inevitable. So if you look at the European church, this is a generalization. Much of European secularity is a direct reaction to corrupt, oppressive state churches. Now, if you look at, say, American as opposed to Canadian church, much of the weakness of the church and the scandal of the American church is that, unlike Europe and unlike Canada, the church is a huge majority in America, but it's still incredibly weak compared with tiny groups like the Jews or, say, on the other side, the gays. And the main reason is that the American church is weak because it's worldly. It's more shaped by the American culture than it is by the gospel. So we've got to look in at particular reasons. Some we can't change, like pluralization, and we should welcome. Some we have to ask the Lord forgiveness for and move out again you know, with a new spirit in our time. Looking at the contrast between the European Church, which uh, you've written, and I know Peter Hitchens has written this as well in his book, The Rage Against God, uh, began to collapse after the loss of faith following the First World War. But in the United States, the, the Church was, was much more of a majority and much more of a grassroots thing. Where did this overt hostility of the culture come from, which is the reason for the loss of nerve that you mentioned, that your, your ABC rule, I, I just heard on the radio this morning an interview with, with a very, very uh, well-known uh, interviewer for the, the national broadcaster here berating a feminist for daring to say that transgender people might not be welcome, for example, in, in her, uh, her sexual assault center. Is, is that, that, that simple? And this, this overt hostility that's taken people that never used to care about these issues and put them really firmly on one side or another of the culture war. Where did that come from? Well, I think there's two reasons above all. In Europe, as I said, it's a direct reaction to corrupt, oppressive state churches. You can see it supremely in the laïcité of France, which, of course, touches Canada in some ways. But, you know, the French cry of the radicals coming from Diderot, we want to strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. A little gory, but you get the point. Right. The French Revolution threw off both church and state. Now, the United States never had anything like that because of disestablishment. And faith, religion in general, flourished, not despite disestablishment, but because of it. It was voluntary, based on the dictates of conscience. But 
the excesses and the sub-Christian practices of the religious right uh, have created a backlash. That's one factor. The other factor is quite simple. If you look at the roots, say, of uh, sexual revolution, political correctness, and so on, they actually go all the way back to the French Revolution, which was animated by extreme hostility to religion. And you can see, say, Charles, uh, sorry, not, Wilhelm Reich, people like that, who's the architect of the word, the sexual revolution, back in the 1920s, they openly admit that the, the final obstacle to their success is the church. In Europe, the Catholic Church, as they saw it. In America, the Evangelicals and the Catholics. So Christians are the obstacles of their success. So animosity towards religion is a founding article of much of the left. What do you think the, what sort of mistakes did the Christian right make? Because uh, you've been part of this discussion, but I know First Things has published quite a few articles about this. And uh, during the rise of Donald Trump, I know that Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention has really been discussing how Christians need to take a different approach. How would you uh, delineate the difference between the successes uh, and the failures of of the Christian right, especially during the 90s Clinton era? I thought Russell Moore was dead wrong, but we can come back to that in a right. second. Now, I've been a strong critic of the religious right in its excesses uh, at two points. One is what's called politicization. In other words, trusting politics to do more than politics can do. You know, in a democracy, and certainly uh, our Western countries, we should all be politically engaged, no question. But politicization forgets the old maxim that the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. Right. In other words, it is downstream from so much of culture, education, entertainment, family life, and so on. And the religious right forgot that and pretended if it got people in power, our people in quotes, all would be well, and it wasn't. But the second problem is even worse than that. They tried to do the Lord's work, and it really was trying to do that, To use the old term, they did the Lord's work in the world's way. So, for example, our Lord calls us to love our enemies. That's a very radical challenge. Uh Someone like William Wilberforce, great social reformer and evangelical, truly loved his enemies, and they attacked him physically as well as in every other way. But he loved them and finally won through to them, whereas the religious right demonized, stereotyped, treated its enemies disgustingly, you know, you see bumper stickers like hate is not a family value and so on, which which grew out of that. So there were real problems on the religious right. Having said that, I thought Russell Moore was dead wrong, and he's been rightly rebuked by some of his fellow Southern Baptists. I'm not a Baptist. He was wrong in the sense in he blamed the 81% of evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, you know, for their giving in to idolatry and all sorts of things like this. The fact is they didn't vote for, the one. most of them didn't vote for Trump. They voted against Hillary and the progressive left that she represented. Now, I actually understand that and fully agree with it. In other words, if the Democrats had got in with all that they represented after eight years of Obama, that would have mean the American culture was irreversibly set in concrete, short of a massive revival from the Lord. So I think they were voting against the left rather than for Trump. And very few people that I know have a great faith in 
in the Donald himself. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of God's wrecking ball who stopped the country in its tracks and gives America a chance to rethink. Right. It's interesting in, in, in your answer to the question of why that hostility came about might might be the answer to this question, because one of the things a lot of people I know are brainstorming is how do you reach the culture with the truth about Christianity in a culture where most of the language we use in the name Christianity itself uh, triggers such ire? And, and you hit on something there uh, when you pointed out that, you know, the demeanor of people like William Wilberforce uh, you know, where they managed to tackle extraordinarily controversial issues while still remaining uh, in in a very Christian demeanor. But how how does one go about effectively transmitting Christian apologetics when most people view Christianity as a hateful religion based on, for example, its sexual orthodoxy? Well, we've got to go back to the practice of the early church. Many people read a book like, say, Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity. What was the final answer to all the bigotry and hatred? Christians were atheists and they drank the blood of children and all this sort of stuff. Wild rumors going around about the early church. But what principally broke through was the way they lived. You know, their caring for their neighbors, for the sick, for the poor. Things like Basil of Caesarea's great cities of compassion. You know, that that was what, what principally broke people through, that you simply couldn't deny, and again and again the cry went up, great is the God of the Christians. So, for example, in, in the plague of Garland in 169, you know, most doctors just got out of town. The best thing to do was put your sneakers on and run for it, because there's no medicine that could help, but the Christians stayed, and they cared for the sick and the poor, and some of them died too. But many of them, ironically, had developed antibodies and were better able to survive the next plague. So it was in many, many different areas, treatment of women, the poor, and so on. It was Christian behavior and the practice of the communities, and we've got to demonstrate that again today. Do you think that 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 exact approach might be able to resonate more simply due to the fact that the, the sexual revolution's report card has come in and only somebody truly bunkered down in a state of denial can call what has taken place progress, right? So I work with several pro-life organizations as well, and what uh, pro-life activists who are on the ground discussing things with people see is that teenagers, for example, are very, very open to the idea that they've been lied to because they know that everything is supposed to be better and more progressive and more inclusive, but they're not happy, all right? You don't have to tell a 14-year-old who's had two abortions that something has gone terribly wrong, and maybe nobody's saying anything's wrong, but they know that there is. And, and of course, the, the culture of divorce and the generation that has been preceded from that, they've been robbed of a lot of the very, very simple things that a very <clears throat> short time ago most people, the majority of people, enjoyed. So what we confront with on, on the cultural level is an extremely hap- unhappy and angry generation who's being told everything's getting better but they don't feel it. Do you think that presents an opportunity? Okay, extraordinarily so. No, that's, that's, at one level, that is the strongest answer. In other words, the sexual revolution, whether it's the identity confusion or the social breakdown of families and all that sort of stuff, it is breeding a harvest of dissatisfaction and chaos and lostness and, again and again, the incidence of loneliness. 
and then, of course, tragically of suicide. So that is the principal argument. Follow Baal and certain consequences come, Elijah says. But if Baal is God, follow Baal. Mm -hmm. And we've got to say, look, you've chosen this and there are consequences. And we can spell them out for you if you like. Now, we've also got to make, you began by talking about discrimination. You know, one of the subtleties of the sexual revolution, they borrowed anti-discrimination from the civil rights movement, where it had incredible moral authority and applied it to themselves. So anyone who disagrees is guilty of discrimination. You know, that, but it, it, that's a an attack too far. And you look, say, at the Jewish people, they understand very well that discrimination and discernment is at the heart of human speech, human logic, but more importantly, at the heart of creation. So, you know, male and female, heaven and earth, God and humanity, God, as the Jews put it, is the great discriminator. He separates, and he means to separate. And our social constructionism, the so-called battle of the binaries, is going to lead us again into intellectual chaos. What you described was the more important, the social and the personal chaos. But really, the sexual revolution is reaching the point of no return. And that leads us to, to a couple of things that Christians need to understand. A lot of people... Uh, during the age of Trump, when fi finally there was this discussion about populism and where populism was coming from, I know a lot of people who never considered the term globalization or globalist until suddenly it was the only thing that political analysts and pundits were discussing in order to understand what was taking place. So Christians really need to understand that their world was created by these modern things before they can really start to see how to approach things. So what in your view, because I know you've both written and spoken about this, uh, is globalization and its impact on the West and Christianity? Well, globalization is quite simply the expansion of human interconnectedness to a truly global level. And in many ways, it's been going on for a long time, but in smaller ways, you think of imperialism or warmongering or the rise of international trade, they were all rather smaller versions of globalization in their day. But obviously, of course, the main carrier now is not capitalism. Capitalism is merely following. It's uh, in, um, IT. It's uh, technology. And so the world is truly capable of being incredibly interconnected today. Now, that's just a simple fact. We shouldn't be scared of it. And I would say two things. First, globalization should be in the DNA of Christians. Right back in Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You have that global vision. You have it in the prophets. Of course, you have it in our Lord, the Great Commission, You know, making disciples of all nations. We of all people, the Christian faith, has globalization in its DNA. Now, the trouble is, though, the challenge to think globally, act locally. You know, it's rather like a Christian equivalent of René Dubot, think globally, act locally. In other words, we can think and should and pray and dream globally, bringing the gospel to the whole world, uh -huh. and at the same time recognizing the sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Give us today our daily bread. We all live with a little power pack of our bodies, which are very limited. We all live in a home in a neighborhood. You know, I'm off this afternoon to Singapore. I travel all around the world, but my home is here in Washington, D.C. And there should be an extraordinary balance between the global and the local. And the trouble with the elites, 
is they live in their penthouse suites and they fly at 30,000 feet in their private jets and they have no sense of the local. And of course, religion, like bodily existence and neighborhoods, is local. And many of the elites have an incredible disdain for the local and therefore for the bodies. And that's why globalization represents, at a religious dimension, a new Gnosticism. Mind good, mind infinite, mind boundless, especially with the new enhancements of technology coming from Silicon Valley. And bodies, bad, and so on. You see a new Gnosticism growing with globalization. But we should never be afraid of the thing itself. We've got to keep the balance. This is interesting because the discussions about globalization seem to be steadfastly ignoring a lot of the questions that we need to be asking. So here in Canada, and you might have seen this, but very recently there was a, there was a formal debate in Toronto between uh, Oxford historian Neil Ferguson uh, and Fareed Zakaria uh, of CNN. And the discussion was, is the international liberal order over? And so you had Neil Ferguson taking the, the somewhat populist line, and he was grasping around for how to explain this, but he simply said, look, this, this uh, new international order, as much as it might have brought us, is leaving people behind. Those people are unhappy. And essentially, uh, Fareed Zachariah pointed out that uh, if you boiled his answer down, he was saying those people were ungrateful because they didn't realize how much better of a world we had since that order had existed. But the spiritual dimension never came up in the entire debate. They didn't talk about the spiritual vacuum the West is actually experiencing. They didn't discuss how one of the reasons that immigrants are having such an impact is because they are arriving with robust cultural mores, and they're not willing to give those up. And so it's posing a, a, a large threat to sort of the, the castrated tolerance and diversity language of the West they're arriving in. And then there's the other elephant in the room that because of abortion and contraception and imploding demographics, the whole reason that you need so many immigrants in the first place is because Westerners have voluntarily decided uh, not to create a future in, in terms of having children. But the interesting thing about that debate is that we see the opportunity for the wrong answer to the question. So you've just described the spiritual dimension of this, but we see in the rise of people like Marine Le Pen, you see in the rise of people uh, like Donald Trump, and you see, especially here in North America, the rise of the alt-right. And the alt-right is using a lot of very, very familiar language. They're talking about localism. They're talking about tradition. They're talking about nationality. They're talking about healthy families. They're essentially using all of the language that Rod Dreher uses about the Benedict Option, except without God and with a heavy dose of strange ethno-ideology mixed in there. So what do you think the chances are that we're going to pick the wrong answer to these questions because we can be tempted by these other movements that, that sound Christian but aren't? Well, that's always the case. People will go to one extreme or the other. So you take Europe. The globalists love the EU, however bureaucratic and however non-democratic it becomes. And the so-called nationalists and patriots like Marine Le Pen, you know, go the other way. And you just see the extremes there. Whereas, you know, people can learn. I'm, I'm, I'm a critical admirer of America, but in the beginning, it had a real balance between the federal and the local. And that's increasingly overwhelmed in the day of globalization. Now, when you talk about the alt-right, remember that there's an alt-left. Mm -hmm. And the alt-left is actually far more capable of winning for a very simple reason, that its ideologies have captured 
the university world and the world of entertainment and the press and media. In other words, in the long run, the alt-right has no chance. Um, and the question is, we who are Christians who don't believe in either of the alt-extremes, you know, we've got to argue for a better way while we have the time, powerfully. To answer, to ask a, a final but, but a bit of a long question, because I know you've got to get ready to fly out here, when you take a look at this, this current situation across the West where everybody's trying to figure it out, right? It, it seems some days, reading the, the commentators, that everything they used to know about politics no longer applies, and everybody collectively is trying to figure out what, what this all means, what populism means, whether or not it's sustainable, whether or not Trump will hang on to the presidency and you know, improve his performance, whether or not Brexit was a blip, and the election of, uh, of Emmanuel Macron indicates that it won't happen again, or this is a broader trend. What's your analysis of the broader situation? Because you seem to have the sky is falling people and the Benedict Option people, and then you seem to have uh, people who are more along the lines of what you're saying by presenting uh, the fact that the West is post-Christian as the opportunity to see the West as pre-Christian. Well, I didn't use the word pre-Christian either. Um, <laughs> but we are in an absolutely fascinating situation. But the way I put it, Jonathan, is simply we've got to get beyond critiquing the extremes. You've got to do that. And you and I both began there. Well, the extremes are obvious. And the recent one we're talking about is globalization and uh, nationalism and its populism. But we've got to try and figure out some of the solutions to this. Now, this is the five. I'm totally against the Benedict option. The Bene Benedict was incredible before the Reformation, probably one of the most powerful movements in the church prior to the Reformation. But the Reformation was a direct reversal of Benedict. Right. And you had the idea of calling and engagement with culture, and the Reformation became the single strongest set of ideas that made the modern world. So we shouldn't be in the business of retreat. We should be in the business of reform. And the Reformation notion of semper reformanda is incredibly important today. But I would stress the positive. You take, for example, what created constitutionalism? Many people don't realize that was the Reformation rediscovery of covenant. The Constitution in America many other countries is a national, secular form of the Jewish covenant. And it's the Reformation that recovered it. The trouble is, in the Church, we've made it theological only, or purely spiritual only, whereas the Reformers made it political too. And so you, you look at the notion of covenant as a freely chosen consent. That's the origin consent of the government. You have a morally binding pledge, not a contract of self-interest. And above all, you have the reciprocal responsibility of all for all, love your neighbors yourself, you even care for the stranger, and so on. In other words, you have the roots there for what the Jews call not just I-thou relationships of Martin Buber, but we-thou relationships, the most responsible community you can have, whether it's marriage, the family, a township, or a whole country. And we've got to explore some of these things, because as Christians, we're the last great defenders of human dignity, sorry, not not alone, with the, with the Jews. As biblical people, we're the last great defenders of human dignity, the last great defenders of human freedom. The atheists can't crown freedom. 
We're the last great defenders of equality, the last great defenders of community, and so on. We've got to realize it is a privilege, also a great challenge, but a great privilege to be the defenders of things that are absolutely critical to human flourishing and the human future. But we've got to get out there and, as apologists, defend it and articulate it, persuade people of it, and then Christians together in our churches and our communities practice it until they see it and see the difference it makes. You know, there's nowhere a greater difference, say, between covenantal relationships and the hookup culture. And where you began earlier with uh, teenagers feeling betrayed. They're absolutely right. The hookup culture is a disaster. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a direct logical consequence uh, of various things in the sexual revolution. Marquis de Sade predicted this long ago. You know, when Keith Richard called masturbation, you know, making love to your best friend. The Marquis de Sade essentially said that it, it, during the revolution. In other words, all that matters is the subjective self. You can have a hundred partners, but they're only there for the self, and the self is all that matters, and so on. And you can see the loneliness and the suicides and the betrayal are direct results. And but we're the alternative. We have the alternative to that. So we've got to have courage and, and move out with confidence. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Well, that's the perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much for joining us again, Oz. Great privilege. Thanks, Jonathan. God bless. Bye.